Lesson four, page number 31 in your Master Plan for Life notebook. And welcome everyone. And welcome those who are here live. Welcome those who are watching on live stream also. And this is lesson four. And it is the fourth of five that are on the first section of part one of Master Plan for Life. So I want to remind you how uh, this is, these lessons are all set up that each lesson has two or three pages before the lesson material that is homework. It's stuff for you to be able to do, uh, passages for you to look up, questions for you to answer in preparation for what will go over that following week. So I encourage you to take advantage of that. It gives you six days worth of something to do in a systematic way to be in Scripture. And sometimes that's hard for folks to uh, know how to be in the Bible and to actually get something out of it. This is one way for you to do it, at least for the time that we're in this class. And then there is the Learning Together section, top of page 31, as you see there. And that's what we'll engage in tonight and every Wednesday when we meet. But the overall notebook in the curriculum is set up with two major sections, and each of those sections is designed to answer one question. This first part, part one, is answering the question, who am I? And in order to answer that question, give a comprehensive answer to that question from Scripture, we have five sections in part one. Uh, section one is on God, the doctrine of God. In fact, if you look in the upper right-hand corner of tonight's lesson, it says doctrine of God. So we're in a lesson in that section. After we're done next Wednesday with lesson five in the doctrine of God, then, two weeks from today, we'll start a new section on the doctrine of the Bible. And after that, there is another section on the doctrine of what the Bible says about humanity and sin, and then what it says about Christ, and then a fifth and final section uh, in this part uh, on uh, the doctrine of salvation. Now, all of those five sections, God, Bible, uh, humanity and sin, Christ, salvation, take up 16 lessons total. Part one has 16 lessons. Then we'll go to part two. Part two is going to answer one question, why am I here? And we have 12 lessons designed to help you answer that. So when you get done with this course, hopefully you'll have a full understanding about who you are as a creature made by the Creator and as one who is a child of God by virtue of the work of the, the Savior, and then why it is He's left us here, what it is we're supposed to be doing together. So that's a Master Plan for Life. And tonight in Lesson 4, we're going to look at a category of God's character qualities, His communicable attributes or character qualities. Uh, and the title that we've given those in this curriculum is the character qualities of His goodness. So instead of using the fancy word uh, in the material, His communicable attributes, we call them His attributes of goodness. So we have these two categories, those of His greatness, those of His goodness. And the one are His incommunicable that we saw in Lesson 2, that is, they belong to God alone and He cannot communicate, He cannot share those with His creatures. They are His alone. But what we're going to look at tonight and then next week as well are this other category, the category of His goodness or His communicable attributes, things that we can emulate in imperfect fashion to be sure, in diminished fashion when compared to God, to be sure. But nonetheless, we can emulate those. And that's what this lesson then is about. Okay? So everybody good? That's, what we're, that's where we are. That's where we've been. That's where we're, we're going. So page 31, lesson number four. Lesson two stated that the attributes of God can be logically divided into two categories, His attributes of His greatness 
and those of his goodness. The key to remembering the difference between these is the word share. So those that are in the category of his greatness are, as I said, incommunicable. He cannot share them. Those we're going to look at tonight under the goodness of God or the communicable attributes of God are those that he can share with humanity. Now, recall that when we looked at, in Lesson 2 and 3, the attributes of God's greatness, those of his incommunicable attributes, that the key word that we had there was that uh, God is infinite in all of those. Do you remember that? God is infinite, we said, in his knowledge. He's infinite in his power. He's infinite in his glory. We kept using that word infinite. And then we defined what we mean by that. That by his infinite attributes, uh, that he's infinite in those things, it means he has no external limitations. And we went out of our way to point out it doesn't mean he has no limitations internally, but he has no external limitations. That is, there is no one or no thing outside of him that can limit his knowledge, can limit his power, can limit his, his authority. So no external limitations. He can then do anything he desires. He can do anything that he desires on demand by fiat as a dictator of his world. Now just think about that for a moment. You've got a being who is without limitations. No one and no thing can impinge upon his power, knowledge, and authority. So therefore he has to ask no one's permission for what he does. He can do all that he pleases by fiat as a dictator of his world. Now, if you're just left there, you could be in a world of hurt because that depends on how this being is going to use all of that power, all of that knowledge, all of that authority. The good news is for us that what he desires to do, he can do all that he desires on demand, but what he desires to do is governed by the attributes of his goodness. So God's greatness, those things that we saw in Lessons 2 and 3, can be thought of as all of the things He's capable of doing. While His goodness, the things we're going to look at tonight, determines what it is He chooses to do, why He chooses to do it, and how He goes about it. And we should thank God that He is all of that. He is great and He is good. Because if He were only great, then that could be terrifying. But those attributes of greatness are governed by his attributes of, of goodness. So, back to the top of page 31, lesson 2 stated, the attributes of God are in these two categories, greatness and goodness. The key difference between them is he can share those in the goodness category, he cannot share with humanity those in the greatness category. His greatness, his omnipotence, his sovereignty, and so on, cannot be shared with created beings. They're exclusively the possession of, of God. Remember, these are the things apart from which he would not be God, and if we had them, we would be God. But humanity can, however, share in the things we're going to see tonight. God's attributes of goodness can be shared with created beings. While these characteristics will always shine in their brightest and most complete forms as qualities of God, mankind can reflect this godliness. Now here are some examples. So back in Lesson 2, when we started to look at those in the other category, we took some time to show, here's just a few examples, and then we focused on, focused on three. We're going to do the same thing. We're going to give just a few examples of character qualities of his goodness that we can emulate, uh, but then we're going to focus on three others in, in particular. 
So here are some examples. The first one is truth, that is, God's genuine, genuineness and honesty. So there are these uh, views of truth. If you, if you were to take philosophy, um, which I had the unfortunate experience of doing, then you would learn that there is the uh, correspondence theory of truth, and then there's the correlation there, and that kind of stuff, okay? So correspondence, it means that, that what God does and says corresponds to reality. Since what reality is, is due to God. God is the one who made reality what it is. So, therefore, whatever God says and does corresponds to reality. That's the correspondence view of truth. So, uh, that means truth adheres to things like the law of contradiction or the law of non-contradiction. That two, uh, two opposite propositions cannot both be true at the same time and in the same relationship. Now, why is that? Because there was a law of non-contradiction hanging out there in the world before God ever came along? God's always been, right? So the reason there is a law of non-contradiction is because that is the nature of God. That is reality. And so what God says and what God does always conforms to reality, but He's the one who creates reality to, to begin with. And so that's why we can rely on laws of logic. And he made us to be people who are logical beings. And we put propositions together and compare them and contrast them and all of that in a logical, logical way. And yet, uh, unfortunately, Christians don't always make great use of this uh, gift of, of thinking that God has given to, to us, really. We, we somehow, really, in a lot of Christian circles, it's considered like a virtue not to think much. You know, I just let, you know, Jesus just sort of fill me and just sort of, you know, guide my steps and I don't really think about it. And the Bible has a lot to say about thinking about it. It has a lot to say about the mind. It has a lot to say about the relationship of the Spirit of God to the mind, as a matter of fact. In one of the most extensive passages in the entire Bible on the work of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul is is correcting the practice of the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 14. He writes this letter to them. He's correcting them about a host of things. One of them is about their approach to the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 14, you will see there that apparently they think that the Holy Spirit just grabs people and just has them start doing stuff involuntarily. They just start talking in ecstatic kind of language that nobody understands. And Paul is saying to them, you know, it's not the way it works. I'm paraphrasing, but that's not the way it works. Yeah. God is a God of understanding. God is a God of order and not a God of confusion. And so you don't have people just getting up and jabbering about things that nobody, that nobody understands. That's what he says in this chapter. And he says to them this. He says, I will sing with the Spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. He says, I will pray with my Spirit but I will pray with my mind also. He's correcting their false notion that the Spirit somehow bypasses your mind. And yet this is a popular idea in a lot of Christian circles. Many Christian people who wouldn't know what the word mysticism means, it means bypassing the mind, <laughs> but they may not know what that means, but they're mystics. And they practice in a mystical sort of way, and that's why you've got so many churches then 
that are not, they don't have classes like this. You don't have a notebook in front of you and you're going through theology and the, you know, the attributes of his greatness and the attributes of his goodness and all that. Can't we all just hold hands and love Jesus and not have to do all this work? Okay. But no, this is, this is, Christianity is a mindful religion. And God is a God who is a God of thinking and intellect, and He has made us to be that, and He has made us to be receivers of His, of His truth. And yet, you get too many people who are all too quick to accept violations of reality, like the law of non-contradiction. I'm talking to a pastor a couple of years ago uh, of a church in our area whose doctrine is that you have to be baptized in order to go to heaven. So, you know, there are lots of churches who believe this. In the New Testament, baptism is important. Therefore, it ought to be important to us. However, it is not so important that it's a matter of heaven or hell. The Bible does not teach that baptism either qualifies you for heaven or disqualifies you for heaven. Okay? Uh, but there are people who teach this. And this particular denomination, you ever heard of the Church of Christ? Lots of churches of Christ around, that's what they believe. Uh, the Church of Christ has another more modern version. Uh, you'll see churches that are just called Christian churches. So we have a couple of in our areas. I'll just mention them. We've got across the street from us, South Point Community Christian Church. That is a Church of Christ with rock music. I mean, that's what... that's. Churches of Christ don't have instruments. And so they had a split in the 60s. So the Christian churches have instruments. So it's Church of Christ doctrine with rock music. And so you got lots of those. you got Twin Oaks Christian Church. That's, that's another one of these. Now, there was a guy who was on staff at Twin Oaks Christian Church, and he left and he started a thing called LifeBridge, which is now 242. I mean, you just can't keep it all straight, can you? Okay. Uh, and so I'm corresponding with this pastor who left Twin Oaks, who went to LifeBridge, which is now 242, and I'm going, hey, I've had people come to my church. We have people at this church who went there, but then they found out that they believe you've got to be baptized. No? And I said, yeah, that's the deal. You probably should have figured that out, asked that before you, <laughs> before you went. But they came here, and uh, I said, you know, you've got multiple people who don't realize what it is you guys really believe. And so you should tell him. And he's saying, well, no, we really don't believe that, that you have to be baptized. Oh, wow, okay, well, good. So he and I have this back and forth. I could show you the emails. And it is the most confusing thing you've ever seen in your life to try to nail this guy down onto what they believe. But you'll need to look no further than this quote, okay? Here's, here's the quote. You don't have it. I'm giving it to you. He says to me, quote, it is wrong to teach either of the following, that you do not need to be baptized to be saved or that you have to be baptized to be saved. It's wrong to teach either one of those. Well, you know what? You've got to teach one or the other. And you know how I know you've got to teach one or the other? Because of the law of non-contradiction. <laughs> okay? And I ask him, I ask him, and I went, hey, that's a contradiction, man. And he goes, no, it's not, a, it's not a contradiction because, you know, over in this passage over here, I think it teaches that, and over in this passage over here, I think it teaches that. So you think the Bible contradicts itself. No, 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 no contradiction. It's just you just got to, that's it. You just got to deal with it. 
So you just leave this contradiction just sort of hanging out there. And he's content to, to do that. People in our culture, very content to think that is not think <laughs> this way. Going back to the late 80s, uh, 91, I think it was actually, 91, when Clarence Thomas was nominated to go on to the Supreme Court. Some of you might remember that. And his uh, nomination was going on in the Senate to vote for approval. And then at the last minute, over the weekend, a woman comes forward, Anita Hill. And she says, I used to work for him, and he said and did all these horrible things to me. And over the weekend, on Sunday, they had live television, and the whole nation is riveted on Sunday while she gives this testimony, saying these things that he, he said and did. He ended up getting confirmed, but barely, and he's been on the Supreme Court since. But here was the fascinating thing. After you know, he comes and gives this testimony, I never said and did that stuff. And she says he said and did these things. Then they put microphones in front of these senators, supposed to be intelligent people. Hey, who's telling the truth? And more than one of them said, I think they're both telling the truth. Well, look, I, to this day, I'm not sure who was telling the truth. I can tell you this, they're not both telling the truth. Okay? And you had a similar sort of thing go on more recently now. You had Brett Kavanaugh, and you had the exact same thing last minute. And this uh, Christine Blasey Ford comes forward and makes these accusations about him. Somebody's lying. Okay? Not... They both cannot be true. All right, truth. That's one character quality of God's goodness, which, of course, we should be able to, should emulate. Faithfulness. God's complete reliability. God's complete reliability. So, God is faithful because truthful. What He says can be counted on faithfully. But... It's this faithfulness that makes truth absolute and unchanging. It's not that God just says something that's true today. It'll be true tomorrow and the next day because of His, his faithfulness. It makes God's actions also consistent so that when we see God acting in the past, for example, in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, sometimes people think there's no value for us today for the Old Testament because now Christ has come and you're no longer sacrificing animals you know, at the temple and some of the things they did under the law. To be sure, it's a different arrangement, but you learn a ton about God and God's dealings with people, and His, and His character has not changed. And so, since He doesn't change, He is faithful, then there's a consistency in His actions in the past that can serve as a predictor of, of the future. So this idea of... God being truthful and then God being faithfully truthful, consistently truthful, is something that we should be very, very thankful for. But sometimes people think that truth is what I make it to be. I mean, right? What it, you have your truth? Yeah, I got my truth. You got to listen to my truth. I prefer, I prefer the truth, okay, rather than yours or or mine, but that's a big deal, a subjective idea of truth rather than an objective idea of truth. Christians inadvertently buy into this kind of thing. Have you ever seen like a bumper sticker that, that says, you know, God said it, I believe it, that settles it? You can eliminate that middle phrase, actually, the I believe it part. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. See, it would be settled if you didn't believe, even if you didn't believe it. You could just go, God said it, that settles it. But we think it's settled because I somehow have some subjective role to, uh, to play in this. So 
God is truth, and we need to emulate that truth. God is faithful and reliable in the execution, carrying out of that truth. Thirdly, mercy, which is God's compassion and pity for sinners. Since God has no equal, then anything He does for creatures is by definition something He has to condescend to do. There is no one equal to God and certainly no one higher than God. So everyone is under God. So therefore, everything He does, He's condescending, coming down in some way to do. And mercy is this condescension of God stooping down to do something He doesn't have to do. Especially, mercy is when applied to sin. That's why we say it's His compassion and His pity for sinners. Now, we're going to see in our lesson tonight a broader term for everything else that God stoops down to do. Other than, uh, than for sin, that is... His grace. In God's grace, He does all kinds of things for creatures that He doesn't have to do. And they're not all applied to the issue of sin, but mercy has to do with sin. So these are just examples. And so when you're wronged, you're sinned against, you can show mercy rather than judgment to people. You can emulate God in that, in that way. All right, middle of page 31. Just as God's greatness was seen to be governed by the fact that He's infinite, now, His goodness is governed by the fact that He is, is holy. Every quality that He possesses and shares with creation is holy. The holiness of God must be understood in two ways. First, God is separate from His creation. That is the fancy word that He is transcendent. He is apart from His, his creation. So that's the way, if you want to... You want to know what the word holy means, and if you're a Christian, you should want to know what it means because the Bible uses it a lot. <laughs> That's what it means. It means apart, separate. Now, most of the time when we think of holy, we think of someone who's kind of a goody-two-shoes, a holier-than-thou kind of person, pious, often used then in a negative sense. Now, that can all be true that you got people like that, of course, but the primary meaning of what holiness is is separate. So we say here, the term holy literally describes something that has been set apart or separate. So here are examples. In the Bible, the first part of the Bible where you have the temple and you have the priests and you have all that goes on there and God gives these very uh, intricate uh, regulations and requirements for what's to happen there and how it's to happen. The vessels, the utensils that are used in the temple are called holy. So here it's applied to an inanimate thing that's, that's holy. The temple itself, a building, was holy. You remember when Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and God says, take off your sandals because the ground you are on is, you remember? The ground, the dirt, is holy. Now how is that? How can you have these you? These vessels, these utensils being holy. How can you have a building being holy? How can you have the ground being holy? Well, it's because they're separate in that. The, the thing that happens with those utensils, what occurs in that building? What's happening now in this meeting between Moses and God? This is separate. This is a part. This is completely unusual from what happens. So it's holy in that sense. It's not mundane, which is the opposite of, of holy. So in that sense, then, a church building can be holy because something special takes place 
when God's people come together on, on Sunday morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 15. 1 Corinthians 7, 15. It's this interesting passage where the whole chapter in 1 Corinthians 7 is about marriage, divorce, remarriage. And there, Paul who wrote it is again having to write to these same people I mentioned earlier. Remember the whole Holy Spirit problem, 1 Corinthians 14? This is now 1 Corinthians 7. And the Corinthians are messing up marriage, divorce, and remarriage. They just messed up lots of stuff. Do you know that, this is just an aside, but I've actually seen churches called like Corinthian Baptist Church. I mean, the last thing I would want to call myself is Corinthian, <laughs> given how many problems these guys had. But nonetheless, they're messing up marriage, divorce, and remarriage. You've got a whole chapter written on that. And one of the issues that they were struggling with was this, that, hey, Christianity has been introduced now by you, Paul, because he was the one who visited Corinth, preached the gospel, saw a church formed there, and now he's moved on. But Christianity's now been introduced to this formal, still pagan city, and all of us were pagans. And we used to worship the pagan gods here at the pagan temple. And... Most of us are married to somebody who did that. And some of us are following Jesus, and some of us are still married to people who are going to the pagan temple. So one question, logically, would be, are we supposed to be with this person anymore? They're not a Christian. And Paul's addressing that. And you can go and read there what he says. The gist of it is this. If they, the pagan, the non-Christian, is pleased to stay with you, then you stay with them. And, but if they depart, then you're not under obligation. If they say, I don't want to be married to a Christian, and they leave, then you're not under obligation. Then he has this curious thing where he talks about the children. He says, he says your household is holy, and if the, otherwise, the children, verse 15, would not be considered sanctified. That's another word for holy. The children in a house with at least one Christian is considered holy. Now, the children doesn't mean they're Christians individually. How can, a, how can a family that's got just one parent that's a Christian be considered set apart? Well, it's the same thing as the dirt, the same thing as the utensils, the same thing as the building. It's because that's not the norm. Most families don't have even one. If you've got one, you're set apart. And you're, and you're blessed. And you, Christian in that family, then should seek to be a blessing to that family if they're pleased to, to stay with you. So this term holy just describes something that's been set apart or separate. It's the major emphasis of the Old Testament teaching on the holiness of God. For example, the prophet Isaiah was granted an awesome glimpse of the holy God in a vision. And he describes the scene in Isaiah chapter 6, in the year that King Uzziah died. I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of His robe filled the temple, and above Him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His, of His glory. So here you've got Isaiah, and he gets this glimpse, this awesome glimpse of, of God and the worship of God among the, the angels and around his, his throne. 
And on the one hand, you know, Isaiah is fascinated and he's privileged beyond measure to see this. On the other hand, he's scared, he's frightened. He says right away, he says, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. So he's got this great privilege given to him, but he's also trembling and he says, woe is me. And that's the way it is when we are in the presence of something that is different, completely different, separate, holy. I mean, he immediately, Isaiah recognizes, wow, this is not me. <laughs> I'm sinful. He's completely holy. He's completely different than me. And so he reacts accordingly. But we have this kind of tension. You know, we are fascinated on the one hand, but we also are terrified by it on the, on the other. Let me give you a few examples. I mean, you know, just when you're going... When you're going along and you see a car accident and then you're trying to, you have to get around the thing, right? And there's an ambulance there. It's kind of like, on the one hand, you don't want to see, but you kind of want to see. That's why everybody's, that's what gawkers do, right? Isn't that why it always slows down? Because we got gawkers. And then you're, you're mad at the gawkers, but here's the weird thing. You kind of gawk a little bit when you go, <laughs> when you go by. This thing's taking so long. Why is everybody gawking? And why, well, I'm already, might as well up here. I take, you know. So on the one hand, you don't. On the other hand, you, you do. There was this show on the radio years, a lot of years ago when people listened to shows on the radio. And uh, the beginning of the show started out, it, the show was called Inner Sanctum. And there was this voice that would come on and say, you have entered the Inner Sanctum. And it's just that scary thing, right? And you're kind of creeped out, but you're listening to it too. What's sanctum mean? Holy, sanctified, set apart. Right? Here's Jesus. Jesus is on a boat and he's sleeping. And a storm arises. And some of his apostles, who were fishermen, you remember, and they know how these storms can come up very quickly and they can be very dangerous. And so this thing is a violent storm and they know they are in real danger. <laughs> the entire time Jesus is sleeping. And they come to him and they wake him up and they say, Master, don't you care that we perish? And then Jesus says, peace be still. And immediately the thing stops. Now, what are those guys thinking? Freaked They're freaked out. You know, they didn't say, wow, what else can you do for an encore? <laughs> Let's sell tickets. No, no, here's what, when, when that violent storm was going, the Bible says they were afraid. And then Jesus stops the storm, and this is what it says in the King James, it says this, they were sore afraid. <laughs> they were even more afraid. Now why? Because they're in the presence of someone different. He's sleeping. He says peace, and it stops. They're sinners, and they freak out, sore afraid. See, that's the dynamic between a holy God and sinful people. You see it in Scripture all the time. John MacArthur tells a story of a guy out in California. I mean, California really does. I mean, they really are the land of fruit and nuts, okay? And MacArthur and those guys that try to minister out there, they say that all the time. Uh, there are just churches and cults and stuff 
like everywhere. I've been to MacArthur's church just around the block. There's this gigantic Buddhist temple. There's just all kinds of stuff everywhere. He says, MacArthur says, you know, in, in California, if a guy puts on a bathrobe, grows his hair long and says, I'm Moses, he'll have 20 followers in 10 minutes. Okay. And he said there was a guy on the radio who was saying every morning when he gets up to shave, uh, Jesus comes in and talks to him. He's shaving. Jesus is talking to him. And MacArthur called him, <laughs> said, hey, I heard you say that. So when you're shaving and Jesus comes in, what do you do? And the guy says, I talked to him. And, he, and, G- and MacArthur says, do you keep shaving? <laughs> and the guy goes, yeah, I keep shaving. He goes, and it's not Jesus. That's what he means, it's not Jesus. And then he says profoundly and rightly, if Jesus Christ walked in, you'd be on your face before him. It's not acting like everything's, hey, you're just my buddy. Because we're still, even though we're children of God, we're still sinful. Isaiah was a children of God, still sinful. In the presence of God, we understand that we are in the presence of someone different, and we ought to treat it that way. And that is why one of the reasons that we do our worship services the way we do. You know, it's not a lot of fun and games. We're not trying to entertain anybody. We're in the presence of God, and we need to act like it. All right, bottom of page 31. To say that God is holy, then, means that He is not part of the universe. The universe is not part of Him. He is unique. He's apart from it. So we are not pantheists. And I am not anti-environmentalism. I am anti-pantheism, which has God in the the stuff, God in the tree. And so we're in, we're in effect worshiping nature rather than simply protecting nature. That's a different thing. God has given to humanity the responsibility to subdue and care for the earth. So we should do that, but we don't worship nature. Psalm number 24 and verse 1, Psalm 24 and verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's. But some people are so radical in their view of nature and the environment that they slightly change that in the way they behave to the earth is the Lord. Well, the earth is not the Lord. The earth is separate from the Lord. The Lord made it, okay? So we're not pantheists. Top of page 32, God is separate and God is ethically pure. God's uniqueness is seen not only in the nature of His existence, that He's everywhere, He can do anything He wants and so on, but also in His activities. He does not act like we do. He does not sin. We do. Therefore, the word holy came to be applied to the apartness, the separation, the difference between the ethical character of God and the ethical character of humanity. Unlike us, one, God does not, never does anything that's wrong and always does what is, is right. So here's what happens primarily today in our church circles. Because we have not been taught about God a whole lot. We've not been taught about the character of God a whole lot. Because that's the case, we take a somewhat flippant view of God in this category of his ethical character versus ours, us being sinners and him being completely holy in his character. So what I've observed is that in contemporary Christianity, evangelical Christianity, we assume a discontinuity, rightly, a separation between God as the creator and us as the creature. 
So that's good. And so we'll celebrate that God is high and lifted up and God's transcendent and all of that. But we assume in this other area of ethics, of our ethical character, more of a continuity. And so, as an example, in songs that are sung in churches today, there's a whole lot that praises God for the fact that he's high and lifted up and all of that. And again, that's all right. That's all good. But there's not a whole lot that says much about this distinction in our, eth- in our character. There's a distinction in our position. He's transcendent and we're not. Okay. But not in our character. There's not much said about that. Here's a book called Where is Theology Going? And Millard Erickson, who wrote this several years ago, pegged a bunch of stuff that was happening in the church. And he's got a little section on music in churches. And he says, neglect, and he's, he's got a, a portion, a whole chapter on sin and whatever happened to sin in churches. And then he's specifically saying, whatever happened to sin in music? So he says, neglect of the topic of sin is very evident when one considers Christian music. There are abundant references to the greatness of God and the wonderful character of Jesus. There are a great many expressions of praise and love for Him. But extremely conspicuous by its absence is any reference to sin, any confession of sin, or any repentance for sin. One searches almost in vain for any such themes. He says, among the few in a particular uh, songbook that he, that he chose to give his examples, he says, among the few in that songbook that do mention sin, there's just a one reference, one word reference to sin rather than any extensive development of the subject. In the entire book of 185 songs, words like sin, guilt, and wicked appear only 10 times. And there are no expressions of confession or repentance. He says it's surprising in light of the popularity of the Psalms in the praise and chorus movement that the 51st Psalm is omitted You all know what the 51st Psalm is? Remember that? This is David after he has committed adultery and he has now confessed and he's repented. And Psalm 51 is all about his repentance there. But you get nothing about about that. He says, as are all of the Psalms which speak of God's wrath or of evil deeds, it seems that this is not part of the the religious experience or conceptions of this generation. The sense of awe, of sinfulness, of unworthiness, of guilt is absent from today's positive religion. He says what's interesting is these songs like this, it's not liberal churches that are doing them. He says these are most popular with evangelicals whose belief in human sinfulness has been the basis for their gospel of the need for a supernatural regeneration by divine grace. And yet the whole time we're downplaying the very reason that we need that divine grace. So, I'm just saying to y'all, the reason we're doing theology, the doctrine of God, is because what you understand about God will affect the way you live your life, will affect the way you go about your your ministry. All right. So, let's look at the fact that God is holy in these three areas, love, righteousness, and grace. God is holy in His love. Here are the biblical terms for love. The Bible is the only source of information about the love of God. All right, so do you see that line? The Bible is the only source of information about it. So that means don't make it up yourself. Look in the Bible, see what God, you know, so don't come to me, please. Don't come to me for counsel and tell me what God, 
you know, wouldn't want, you know, a loving God, if God loves me, he wouldn't want. Don't tell me that. Let's look at the Bible and let's see what this loving God would want for you, okay? We don't make it up ourselves. And further, uh, we've got a distorted view of the love of God anyway. Remember, we're fallen. We're sinful. And so we, in sin, don't appreciate his love as it is the way we ought. And then things like just fallenness of the world around us and natural disasters and all the hassle that goes with living in a fallen world can make it feel like God doesn't love you. So if you, do, if you base it on what you think, then you're going to come away and go, you know, this is not, what I'm, this is not how I would define love. But you, we've got to allow God to define God's love. You find that in the Bible. Within the pages of God's Word, there's a rich description of His love. While the Old Testament clearly taught that He is loving, the New Testament offers a full explanation of that love. The New Testament was first written in the Greek language, later translated into English, and Greek had several different words to explain the concept of love, two of which are used in the New Testament. Sometimes these terms are used interchangeably. Sometimes they were used in ways that highlighted various aspects of love. So here's one of those Greek words, philos, and that refers to relational love. So we get the city of Philadelphia. Delphos means brotherly, brother, and philos means love. So Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. I've been to Philadelphia a bunch of times, and it's a big fat lie, okay? <laughs> that's, all, that's all I'll tell you, all right? But that's what it means. A philanthropist, anthropos means humanity or man, so philanthropist means a lover of, of humanity. And so a philanthropist is often somebody who is generous. They give away money to, to help people, love of humanity. So philos is relational love. Eros, the word erotic comes from that. It's romantic love. That particular Greek word, although was used in New Testament times, was not used specifically in the New Testament. But here's that third word that's used most often, and that is agape. And it was often used in certain contexts to communicate the basic nature of true legitimate love. It was the foundation for all the other types of love. For a relationship or a romance to legitimately be called love, it, not, it must share the characteristics of agape. God's character is what defines the nature of true love. 1 John 4, 8, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. What does the Bible tell us about God's love? Here are the characteristics. One, God's love is an act of the will not an emotion. Feelings are changeable from one day to the next. When love is defined in terms of feelings, it too is changeable. Certainly love affects the emotions, but the two should not be confused. Biblical love is not merely a feeling, but rather a choice. Now, am I right that in our culture, love is completely identified with emotion and how you feel? So that's how, why we can talk about falling in. That's why we can talk about love at first sight. You know, I just had this feeling come over me. We can talk about falling in love. We can talk about falling out of love. And so, you know, if, if it comes and goes, well then, of course, the relationships that go with that will come and go, and marriages will come and go. Secondly, God's love is governed by His other attributes. A popular replacement for love is sentimentality. People feel that to be loving means that the that one must ignore sin and overlook error. However, the true, true biblical love cannot contradict the other attributes of God. It always functions within the sphere of truth. So you're not loving somebody by not telling them the truth. That's what we're saying. Love functions within the sphere of truth. 
So if you're going to make up your own version of love, then you're going to go, well, it wouldn't be loving for me to hurt their feelings. No, you don't want it. You're not trying to hurt anybody's feelings. You want to be nice as you can. You want to be gentle. But nonetheless, if someone is doing something that's harming themselves or others, or harming the reputation of God, then you've got to tell them the, the truth. The Bible has all kinds of examples of that. Thirdly, God's love is sacrificial. Mankind's version of love tends to be selfish. It's preoccupied with receiving rather than giving. But true godly love requires giving, sacrificing oneself for the benefit of another. The supreme example, of course, is the gift of God's Son for our salvation. And then fourth, God's love is not based on conditions. It's common to find people using so-called love as a bargaining tool. I love you if. However, God has loved mankind with no ifs attached. He did not ask what we would give Him in return. His love for us was in spite of our sinful condition. God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. To put it another way, we tend to say, I love you because you're lovable. God says, I love you because I am love, in spite of the fact that you are unlovely. Fifth, God's love is eternal. People often speak of falling in and out of love as if it's accomplished in the same manner as catching a cold. However, genuine love does not just happen, it's a choice. God never falls out. Love is part of His nature. Therefore, He has said, I've loved you with an everlasting love. All of that, you can define it this way. God's love is the character quality that causes Him to freely and eternally choose to accomplish His will in, the, in our lives for our benefit. Choose. So it's a choice that He makes for us. Here's the working definition that you guys, if you've been around for a while, have heard me use for a lot of years. Just love is doing what's in the best interest of another. Love is doing what's in the best interest of another. All right. So God is holy in His love. Top of page 34. He's holy in His righteousness. The terms holy and righteous are often used without precise definitions, but they are different. As noted above, holiness emphasizes God's separation. His righteousness is holy, though, separate, different, because it's unlike any standards of right that mankind would establish. So here are some of the biblical terms for God's righteousness. You've got, in the Bible, it uses the word righteousness, which is the quality of being in a, a right state. Righteous is that state of right. Right is the standard. Whatever is right, that we're referring to the standard of righteousness. And then just is a synonym. So if something is just, it's right. It's a synonym. And justice is the application or the consequence of, of righteousness. Now, the opposite of these is unrighteousness and being unjust. And we'll give a precise definition in a moment. So here are the characteristics of God's righteousness. It's conformity to a standard. So what or who is the standard? I'm asking you. That would be God, wouldn't it, of righteousness? His, his character is the standard. Now, you actually have, look at Leviticus there, Leviticus 19. You actually have weights and measures as being referred to as honest or dishonest. Some translations call them righteous or, or unrighteous. Weights being called righteous or unrighteous. How can a weight be righteous or unrighteous? Well, because righteousness means conforming to a standard. And a weight, if it says it's a pound, then it should actually be a pound. And if it's not, then and in those days, in those days, since it was an agrarian society, and when you bought something, you were paying for it by weighing it, then whether or not somebody had their finger on the scale or they used a weight that was not proper was a way of stealing money. So that's why it's righteous or, or honest. 
It's conforming to a standard. God himself is that standard, as we've said. Thirdly, bottom of page 34, God, his righteousness requires the punishment of disobedience. Righteousness requires the punishment of disobedience, that is, the failure to conform to the standard. Now, let's stop here for a second. Number three says righteousness requires the punishment of disobedience. Now, why would that be? Here's why. This might help you. Look back up at the top where we've got those five terms, righteousness, righteous, right, just, justice. And see the fifth one there, justice, is the application of righteousness. So when you go down to the bottom now, number three, you could actually scratch the word righteousness and you could put justice there. Justice requires the punishment of disobedience. And so righteousness or justice, yes, requires, requires that. Top of page 35, righteousness, though, also, or justice, requires the other side, rewarding obedience. Now, you put both those together, three and four, and those are, as I'm saying here, that's what justice is. A righteous God will always do what's right in view of our actions, both punishing and rewarding are just. So here's a definition. God's righteousness is the aspect of His character that ensures that all that He does conforms to His own perfection. And it also demands that all others conform to that standard. God's justice is the aspect of His righteousness in which He rewards or punishes. All right, so where does that leave you? Where does that leave me? Where does that leave humanity? God's completely righteous. That means if He's righteous, that requires justice. Justice means rewarding obedience and uh, punishing disobedience. So where is everybody going to wind up if God doesn't intervene? Everybody's going to be punished. How long is everybody going to be punished? Because how long does it take to pay it back? Yeah, you won't be able to do it. God's infinitely righteous. So we're in, bad, we're in bad shape, man. But as I was you know, saying last week, you know, you could go the Almond Brothers route and say, you know, Lord, I hope you'll remember that I'm a rambling man, trying to make a living, doing the best I can. People have this idea that God's going to grade on a curve. Remember when you were in school? And I don't know what kind of students you guys were. I know what kind of student I was. I married a straight-A student. Kim, straight A's. Never gotten in any trouble. Uh, how do I say this uh, delicately? I was not straight A's <laughs> and did get in trouble. And those of us who were not straight A people always hated the straight A folks because there was this great concept that these teachers had of grading on a curve. See, if all the people in the class are boneheads like you, then they grade on a curve and they let the standard down so that you actually get a better grade than you actually achieved. It was a beautiful thing, the curve. But if everybody doesn't blow it, if you get a couple of people who are curve breakers, who get an A when the rest of us are getting C's and D's, then they say, hey, they got an A. Why couldn't you guys? Nah, you're getting your C or D. So you hated the curve breaker. Kim's a curve breaker. I love her. But she's a curve breaker. Hear this, though. Jesus was the ultimate curve breaker. When he walked the earth, people understood we're around perfection. And what do sinful people do in the presence of perfection? 
Just like, you know, I didn't like the know-it-all who got the A. We didn't like the guy who's walking among us. And so he was crucified. And God's not going to grade on a curve. And when humanity stands before God, there will be no excuses, none, zero. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 3 and verse 19, before the bar of God, before the law of God, every mouth will be stopped. Every mouth will be stopped. Right now, everybody's got an excuse. No excuses. But here's the great news. God's also holy in His grace. Biblical term for grace. Grace is one of the most misused and abused words in theology. It's a very simple concept. The biblical term translated into English by the word grace means to stoop, to bend down. It communicates the idea of reaching down with condescending favor or kindness. Now, God is not obligated to give us anything, but humanity receives good, clearly. So that means it's grace. But if you add, so just receiving any good from God is a matter of His grace because He's not obligated to give it. But then you add sin to the mix, and you get what we have under B, characteristics of God's grace, that it's undeserved favor. God's kindness has been given to mankind in spite of the fact that they definitely do not deserve it. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So here's a question I want you guys to ponder. We only have about seven minutes left, so stay with me. Ponder this question. Think about this. Remember, God, in His justice, He has to punish disobedience. He has to punish wrong. Otherwise, He's not just. But now here we're saying He gives us favor, even though it's undeserved. The next point says it's unearned. So what happened to that whole justice thing? Here's the question. Is it not unjust of God? to not give us what we deserve? See, we we almost never think of that. We almost never think, you know, God is violating His justice by not killing me. There was this, I heard this story, these two guys walking along, one guy says to the other, "Uh, I just want God to give me what I deserve. The other guy starts running. (laughs) He goes, where are you going? He goes, "Uh, I I don't want to be here when God gives you what you deserve. So is God being unjust? Well, there's a sense in which that's true. But God can't be unjust. And so I'll just leave that intention right now. But the truth is, He does overlook some of your stuff. You're here tonight. I'm here tonight. I'm breathing. He hasn't sent me to hell. He hasn't struck me dead. And given what the Bible says about sin, he certainly could have and by right should have. But he hasn't for any of us. So there's a sense in which this grace idea that he's giving us favor that we don't deserve and that we haven't earned, in spite of the fact that we're sinners, is a violation of his justice. So stay with that. Just hold it there. God's grace is undeserved. It's unearned bottom of page 35, most people feel they can do something to earn God's favor. However, God cannot be manipulated. Nothing will obligate Him. 
God's favor is a free gift. If you have to do something to earn grace, then it's by definition not grace. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. That verse, those, those two verses right there, are what I was reading as a 19-year-old in my bed, reading the Bible. I'd grown up in church, and I read those two verses, and God, God turned the light on in my heart, reading those two verses right there. And I recognized... That's it. This is all outside of me. This is all Him. And it's all by His grace. And I had been trying to earn it. I had been trying to keep it. And now I recognize He'll have none of that because no one will boast before Him. So here are a couple of other verses along those same lines. Romans 4.4. 4. Romans 4.4. 4. To the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift but as an obligation. Romans 4.4, 4. so that's saying if you earn it, then God's obligated, and that would mean it's not grace. Here's another one, Romans 4.16, Romans 4.16. The promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace. Comes by faith so that it may be by grace. That is, it comes by believing rather than working so that then what is received is by the grace of God. You're believing what He has done for you, not what you do in order to earn it. And that's what Romans 4.16 is saying. It comes by faith so that it might be by grace. All right, top of page 36. God's grace is not only undeserved, unearned, but before we come to Christ, it's unwanted even. Contrary to popular belief, mankind does not want anything to do with the true and living God. When a person in his natural state speaks of a desire for God, he's really referring to a desire for the benefits that only God can give, but those are not the same thing. Romans 3 says, there is no one who understands, there is no one who seeks God. So here's a definition of God's grace. God's grace is undeserved, unearned, and unwanted favor giving, given to condemned sinners. So with all of that, with all of that, and what was said on number one and number two on page 35, that it's undeserved and it's unearned, here's a Christian song that was sung in the church that I grew up in. Here's some lyrics. It says, I love him too much to fail him now. Too much to break my vow. For I promised the Lord that I would make it somehow. All right, let me just stop there for a second. Now, what's, what's that song indicating? How are you going to get there? By whose efforts are you going to get there? You know, I made a vow. I promised the Lord that I would make it somehow. But here's the weird thing. Later in the song it says this, His grace is sufficient. I'm going to make it somehow. Right? And so you see, friends, how we mix up these ideas. And we bring in our own thoughts and the way we think it should be and we think what God's love should be and what God's justice should be and what God's grace ought to be. And what we've got to do is allow God to define every one of those things for us. Thankfully, he's given us a book where he does. And that's what we're trying to study together. So here's, here's your take-home truth. All that God does is good because he is the unique standard of right and wrong. All right. If you're able to, do your homework for lesson number five for next week. And I hate to brag, but just take a look at your you know, watches there. It's exactly 8.15, okay? All right. <laughs>